about 11 p.m. on the evening of April 18, 1775, a rider mounted a horse to ride furiously with a message. And his message was that the regulars were coming. The redcoats were coming. And it was a message that he declared around the countryside, around Boston, Massachusetts. It was a message of a call to arms. It was a message to this group of men named the Minutemen, who were said to, have, to, to be ready for combat at a minute's notice, who were said to be ready to defend their home and defend their land from an attack at a minute's notice. And so this silversmith from Boston, Massachusetts, named Paul Revere, rides with this urgent call to arms. He probably didn't say the British are coming because they viewed themselves as British, right? I mean, they were part of the British colonies and they were British colonists. It was the regulars or the redcoats who were coming. And what the Minutemen knew to do at a minute's notice was to grab the musket off of the mantle, to grab some ammunition, maybe a hatchet or a knife for close-in combat, and to ready themselves, to steal themselves for combat, for warfare. And they'd kiss their wives goodbye and their kids goodbye, and their wife and their kids would prepare themselves for the reality of warfare. Well, today we're going to see a different call to arms. It's a little similar to that, but it's a little different too. It's a call to arms that's not for physical muskets or in our day, shotguns or pistols or nuclear weapons. It's not about physical weapons, the call to arms that we're going to see here. It's a call to arms that are much more powerful than a shotgun or an AR-15 or a pistol. It's a call to bear arms spiritual weapons, eternal weapons, because we are in, we're going to see, the war of the ages. And we're going to see a writer of the New Testament issue a call to arms to us, to prepare ourselves, to ready ourselves for combat. The call to arms that we're going to see is in the book of Jude, this little book, 25 verses, this little book that is strong as horseradish. I don't know if anybody ever eats horseradish with, you know, with a meal, but it's, it's strong. Well, Jude is just strong as can be in these 25 verses. And his call to arms is a call to arms to us to tell us that the regulars are coming. An attack is coming on us, and far too often we are utterly clueless. I am utterly clueless, and many Christians are utterly clueless about this attack, about the war of the ages that we're in the middle of. And so Jude's going to tell us about that. The attack he's going to tell us about are the savage wolves that Will read to us from Acts, from the book of Acts, the savage wolves who are false teachers. A pastor from a prior generation named A.W. Tozer, said this. He said, look, the, we're not in a, in a playground here. Not a playground. It's a battleground. It's a battleground. Far too often in the West, we think of Christianity, and in America, we think of Christianity, or at least the, the, the message that's being sold is, 
Health, wealth, and prosperity, baby. It's all good. It's, it's peace and comfort and pleasure and enjoyment. It's about consumerism. It's about this guy. What's, what's in it for me? That, that's the message that's often sold in Christianity in the West. Not our brothers and sisters in Lahore, Pakistan. Ask them if Christianity is about health, wealth, and prosperity. Ask the Christian who's in Yemen if Christianity is, or India, if Christianity is about health, wealth, and prosperity. That's not what the Bible teaches. And that's not what Jude's going to teach us. Jude's going to teach us that Christianity, although we do have the joy of, of, of God in us, one of, the, one of the primary things in Christianity is trials, tribulations, and soldiering. Soldiering. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, put on your armor, the armor of God, and pick up a weapon and stand a post because you are in the war of the ages. Now, the weapon Paul talks about in Ephesians 6 is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the Word of God. Jude is going to tell us about multiple weapons that we should arm ourselves, defensive weapons that we should arm ourselves with to deal with the attack, with the attack of false teachers. So I'm just going to give a little bit of background before we dive into the book of Jude. This morning we're going to see Jude. A week from today we're going to see Jude again. We're going to skip a Sunday, and then that fourth Sunday we're going to close out the book of Jude. We live in a world that is hostile to God and to his Christ. And if you have the audacity to align yourself with God and with his Christ, the world will be hostile, hostile to you too. Now, if you're like Tony Evans says, yeah, I'm a secret agent Christian. No one knows I'm a, I'm a Christian. Then the world's not going to mock you. The world's not going to persecute you. But if you are willing to defend the faith, to let people know that you have believed in Christ, prepare to be mocked because you are in the war of the ages. The spiritual life is not a playground. It is a battleground. And the weapons that the world uses against the children of God, one of the primary weapons is apostasy. That comes from a Greek word, apostasia, which means to fall away or to rebel against. It's about false teaching. It's something that Jude gets really fired up about in his, can I call it his horseradish lettuce, lettuce, his horseradish letter that he writes to us that we're going to study here. And so he's going to tell us to contend earnestly for the faith. I say that this is a strong, strong letter, and Stephen Krafchick puts it this way. He says, Jude is not an epistle one reads for comfort or to ponder esoteric questions about theology. It is a letter of challenge. It is a letter of outrage. And we are unaccustomed to this much passion. That's a great description of this little epistle that we're going to study. Let me give you a little background about, about the epistle. It's written by Jude. 
not the Jude from the Beatles, right? Hey, Jude. No, this is, this, that's a different Jude. It's written by Jude, which is short for Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas, which was a very common name in the first century. We know from the early, first, early church fathers like Augustine, Jerome, Athanasius, and others that the Jude that we're talking about is none other than the half-brother of Jesus. Jude will tell us in the very first verse of this book that he's the brother of James. James is the leader of the Jerusalem church and who wrote the book of James. And we know from Matthew 13, 55, that the names of the brothers, the half-brothers of Jesus, were James, Judas, or our, our Jude, Simon, and Joseph. And the reason I call him a half-brother is because Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, who was a virgin, and uh, she was made pregnant by the power of But Jesus did not have a human father. After Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary, then Mary and Joseph had normal marital relations, and they had children. They had uh, girls and boys, and we know that from Mark 6.3 and Matthew 13.55. I have to, to pause here for a minute and, and, and kind of unpack that a little bit because there is this inaccurate teaching that says that Mary was forever the virgin. And it's, it's a way to, it's, it's an attempt to elevate Mary higher than the, the elevation that God gave her because God did elevate, elevate her and honor her by choosing her to bear the Messiah. But God didn't put her to a level where she's an idol. God didn't put her to a level where we're supposed to pray to her. She's not the queen She's not the mother of God. I remember uh, my, my folks were, were, Costa, were missionaries in Costa Rica for almost 20 years, and we were in a town square and we were walking through, and, and, and there were a bunch of, there were probably a couple hundred people, and they were, they were going to pray. And there was, the, the fellow who was going to pray was on a podium like this. And he started his prayer with, to Mary, the queen of heaven. No, she's a sinner just like us. Now, was she honored? Because the Lord, uh, God chose her to uh, bear the Messiah? Yes, but she's, she wasn't forever a virgin. And she had relations with her husband after Jesus was born. And one of the children is the author of our book, Jude. Jude writes to an audience of believers. And his topic, he started out his topic, he wanted to write about something sweet and soft and warm. Warm and fuzzy and sweet. He wanted to write... He's going to tell us, and we're going to see this verse today. He wanted to write to us, to his readers and to us by extension, about salvation, our common salvation, which is this sweet, warm topic. But then he is moved. He says, I find it necessary. I think he was moved by the Spirit to not write about something sweet and warm, but something cold and prickly, to write about warfare, combat. And he's going to... Lay that out for us because he's concerned about us. He's concerned that Alex Garcia is just walking around dazed and confused and doesn't realize that he's in the war of the ages and that you are as well. So he switches gears and says, I'm not going to write about common salvation. I'm going to write about spiritual combat. 
And we're going to see that in the next few verses. Please turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to the book of Jude, which is the second to last book in the Bible. Jude, verse 1. He says this, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Jude, James, and the other siblings of Jesus didn't believe in him. They didn't trust that he was Messiah. No, he's just, you know, played together as kids. He's not the Messiah. They were unbelievers. But then something supernatural happened. Jude says here, bondservant of Jesus Christ. The Greek word doulos. Doulos means slave. Slave. I mean, we, 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 we use the word bondservant sometimes, but it really means slave. And James, the brother of Jude, starts his book out in James 1.1. James, a doulos of Jesus Christ. So what happened? How did they go from being unbelievers to slave? I'm his slave. I mean, how many of us are going to say about our older sibling, I'm his slave. He's my master. I got a, I got a, a, a brother who's two years older than me. I'm not going to call him my master. I'm not going to say I'm your slave. And he's not going to do it for me either because we know that we're sinners. Something supernatural happened here. The supernatural thing is that we know from 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appeared after he had been tortured by the Romans and after he had been crucified by the Romans, dead, dead for three days, he appeared in his resurrection body to James. And you know James had to be. He didn't care that people thought he would look dumb just with his mouth open. He's, he just had to be dumbfounded when he saw Jesus stuck his fingers in the holes. Right? So that's the supernatural thing that happened. Jesus appeared to James, and James is willing to say, hey, he's, he's God. He's God. I'm his doulos. I'm his slave. And Jude says the same thing, the brother of, of, of James. I, I, it, it appears that Jesus appeared to Jude as well in his resurrection form. Let's look at the rest of verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Look at the threefold nature here. Our nature as believers is triune because we belong to a triune God. The reference here to called, I believe, is a reference to called by the Spirit because it's the Spirit who gives us new life when we trust Christ. We know that from 2 Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 6. When we are rebels, unbelievers, as Jude once was, but and, and, and when we're unbelievers, we're the enemies of God. And I mean, the Bible doesn't mince words about that. It's not very flattering, actually. It calls us the enemies of God when we were unbelievers. But then when we trust Christ, we stop, when, when, when we obey the call, we stop being the enemies of God and we become his children, which is really the next phrase here, beloved in God. We're, we're loved by God the Father because we're not his enemies anymore. We're his children. And then we're kept for Jesus Christ. Isn't that a curious phrase? Kept for Jesus Christ. Kept, kept, kept for what? I mean, what, what are we kept for? When Jesus first came, he came as the lamb who was silent 
before the slaughter. He didn't protest when they whipped him and removed the skin from his back when the soldiers did that. He didn't say, no, 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 don't do that, I'm, I'm innocent. He didn't protest when they hung him on the cross. As a lamb is, who was silent before the slaughter, he opened up, opened not his mouth, Isaiah 53. But when he returns, it will not be as the lamb. It will be as the lion. The lion who slaughters his enemies with the word of his power, Revelation 19. He will return as the conquering king, and that will be the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is this concept that runs through the scripture. Sometimes it's called the day. Sometimes it's called that day. Sometimes it's called the day of the Lord. It is the day where the Lord intervenes in human history and either judges in extraordinary ways or blesses in extraordinary ways. Because when he returns, he will return as the king, not as the lamb who restrained his power, as the gentle, meek lamb, restraining his power. He will return as the conquering king, exhibiting his power and authority. And we are kept not for his extraordinary intervention in history to judge, but praise God, we are kept for his extraordinary intervention into history to bless. Because we're the children of God. So what does it say? Called by the Spirit, beloved in God the Father, and kept kept for Christ Jesus. These are words of encouragement. Jude wants to encourage us because in a couple verses, he's going to shake us by the lapel. He's going to say, hey, listen up. Wake up. You're in combat. He's going to give us a call to arms, not unlike that silversmith from Boston named Paul Revere. Verse 2. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Jude's continuing his, his words of encouragement. We need mercy and peace and love. And look at his threefold. Jude loves to do things in threes. You'll see this throughout the book of Jude. There are many triads, many, many groupings of threes. This is the second one we've seen. We need mercy and love and peace like we need oxygen. Like we need oxygen to breathe. Whether we realize it or not, we need this encouragement because we're on the spiritual battleground. We need God's mercy because we're sinners and we fail. We need God's peace because we live in a broken world and we struggle. It hurts. It hurts because we live in a fallen, broken world. And we need God's love. We need God's love to sustain us and comfort us in the struggles that we have in this world. Jude ends this verse with, be multiplied with you. Be multiplied to you. He doesn't just say peace, love, and mercy. A little bit of that to you. He says, in abundance. What did Jesus say? I come to give them life, and I come to give it, help me out here, in abundance, in abundance. That's not the bogus prosperity gospel, health, wealth, and prosperity, which is no gospel at all. Because the life that Jesus is talking about is not life so that I can satisfy my appetites, so that I can get more of what I see and touch and feel and feed my appetites, which is really what the prosperity gospel is all about. No, the life that Jesus is talking about 
is our existence. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We exist, compliments of him now and in his kingdom forever. He will return and rule on the earth for a thousand years. He will bring the kingdom of heaven with its peace and prosperity and justice and righteousness and bring it to this globe. That's life because we will enjoy life in that kingdom. And then that kingdom will go on into eternity forever because his kingdom, as the prophet Daniel said, is forever and ever and ever. There is no end to it. The point of Jude here in verse 1 and verse 2 is that you are loved. You are loved. You are protected. And you are kept. You are preserved and you are called for a purpose. You see, we don't buy that fake message from the world. The message that I'm talking about is evolution. God is a God of extreme precision, and he has called you. You are not a, the product of some random collection of molecules, random evolutionary process, from the goo to the zoo to you. <laughs> That's not... That's not where we are. We are called by a God who is a God of extreme precision, and he has a plan for your life. We're not here as chance, as, as purposeless goo, which is the message of evolution. No, we are here with a purpose, and God has called us as the daughters and the sons of God, the children of God. That's you as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. This is what I was talking about a couple of minutes ago. He wanted, to, he wanted to write about this warm, common salvation, but he's moved. He's moved by the Spirit. He says, I felt the necessity. It was necessary for him to write instead to contend that we should contend earnestly for the faith. Spiritual combat. This word contend earnestly is the Greek word epagonitsamai. Epagonitsamai. It happens only here in Jude 3. Nowhere else in the Bible. This is the only time this word happens. And, and and here it, epagonitsamites, comes from the Greek word agon, where we get our English word agony. It's about struggle. It's about fight. It's about intense effort. Jude's point is, we're in the war. We're not in a playground. We are in a battleground. We are in a serious, serious war. That's why the Apostle Paul says, put on armor. Put on your body armor and pick up your weapon and get on the wall because you are in warfare. Realize it. Wake up. Paul's not talking about a physical weapon. He's not talking about a physical weapon. He says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The spiritual war that we're in, the war of the ages, has eternal consequences. Now, once we believe in Christ, we are forever saved. We're in the double grip of God the Father, God the Son, Jesus tells us. So we can't lose our salvation. 
But we shouldn't look at that as, hey, my fire insurance is paid up, right? I mean, my fire insurance is paid up. I'm good to go. No, 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 no. That's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. We are in this combat. And remember, time is just a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. And so we have a destiny in the kingdom of heaven, which is a forever kingdom. Live like it. Live like it. There are rewards that are forever rewards that are designed for us if we will obey God and serve him, victors in his power in the war of the ages. There's a saying that one of the greatest tricks the devil ever pulled is persuading the world that he doesn't exist. Persuading the world that he doesn't exist. That's actually a paraphrase from a Christian writer by the name of John Wilkinson in 1836 who said, one of the artifices of Satan is to induce men to believe that he does not exist, right? I mean, if I seek your destruction, but I persuade you that I don't even exist, what wicked brilliance is that? How can you defend yourself against an enemy that you don't even know he exists? That is the wicked brilliance of the devil, and the devil uses his minions, false teachers, to seek to dominate you, to dominate you and me because we're the children of God. And the way he does that is through his offensive weapon of false teaching. A.W. Tozer, who I mentioned earlier, put it this way. In the early days of America, when Christianity exercised a dominant influence over American thinking, boy, that was a long time ago, huh? Men conceived the world to be a battleground. Our fathers believed in sin and the devil and hell as constituting one force. And they believed in God and righteousness and heaven as the other. By their very nature, these forces were opposed to each other forever in deep, grave, irreconcilable hostility. Man, our fathers held, had to choose sides. He could not be neutral. And now Tozer shifts to, to his time. He died in the 1960s. So almost 60 years ago, he's describing this. It's exponentially worse now. So now he shifts to how uh, the, the culture views, views uh, the spiritual realm at that time. How different today. Men think of the world not as a battleground, but as a playground. We are not here to fight. We're here to frolic. He says, we are not in a foreign land. We're at home. We are not getting ready to live, but we are already living. And the best we can do is live this life to the full. It makes sense why one of the pastors here in Houston wrote a book in the early 2000s that was on the bestseller list by the name of Your Best Life Now. No. This is not our best life now because we are in the war. One day we will return home and we will put our weapons down and we will rest. We will rest because we will be in the protection of the king and we will be in his kingdom. But right now we're in the war and this is not our best life now. 
this is not our best life now. No, we are aliens and strangers in this world, to use the words of the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2.11. Now, Tozer isn't saying that Christians should be, oh, everything's terrible, you know, all glum and long-faced, everything's awful. No, 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 no. Tozer, we of all people should have joy because we know our destiny. We know our destiny, and it is not a destiny of death. This flesh and these bones will be remade and fit for heaven for eternity. We have a destiny of life. That's why Jesus said, I come to give them life and life in abundance. Let me talk about this phrase that Jude used in verse 3, this phrase about once and for all, right? He ends the verse, verse 3, the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. The word of God stands forever. And no one has the authority to change the word of God. That's why Moses said in Deuteronomy 12, 32, not to add. He was talking to the Israelites, not to add or take away from God's law. That's why Isaiah said in Isaiah 40, verse 8, the, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Those words, you know, he, he, you hear them, but think about them for a minute. Everything that we see and touch and feel will be gone. This planet, this globe, the trees, the sky, the ocean, it's gone. The only thing that remains is the words of Jesus, the word of God. That's what remains. And so no one has the authority to change the word of God. And we have received all the revelation that is needed in this book. All the revelation with respect to God and his Christ. No one has the authority to add new revelation because it has been handed. What did Jude say? The faith which once for all handed down. Now when Christ returns... We will have more revelation about Christ because he will be here on the earth. That's why the Apostle John says in 1 John 3, 2, at that time when he returns, we will see him just as he is. But he's not here. We're in the period of waiting. We're in the period where he's growing his church. He's building his kingdom, the people in his kingdom. When he returns, there'll be more revelation. But today... This is all the revelation that we need, and praise God for this revelation. It's important <clears throat> to focus on that because there are false teachers who add new revelation. So let's look at this in Jude 4. <clears throat> for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who, long, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord. This is baby brother saying this, calling Jesus master and Lord, right? Jude is saying this, and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. It's the false teachers who have crept in unnoticed. They're the savage wolves that Jude is all wrapped around the axle about, and he wants us to be equally sensitive to. Since the beginning, 
Satan has been peddling false teaching since the beginning, right? In Genesis 3, what did he say to, to, to Eve? You surely will not die if you eat from the tree. He took what God said in Genesis 2, you surely will die if you eat from the tree. And he flips it, the reverse. What happens? She eats, she dies. Dies spiritually, immediately dies physically, ultimately. And so false teachers have been following Satan's lead ever since the garden. Jesus calls Satan a liar and the father of lies in John 8. False teachers follow Satan's lead because they do his bidding. They do his bidding. And the common theme among false teachers is that they attack the person of Christ and what he did. Because if if you can succeed in deceiving someone into thinking that Christ is not the God-man, fully God, fully man, and that he has paid for the sins of the world, that he is the only access to the Father, well, now, frankly, there is no Christianity. If, you, if, you, if the, that doesn't exist, if those truths don't exist. So that's why false teachers immediately go to that point. If you want to detect a false teacher, look at their view of salvation. Look at their view of Christ It's a common theme among false teachers to pervert the gospel, the good news about Christ. And Paul takes it very, very seriously. Paul says in Galatians 1, 7 through 9, there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven, remember that phrase because we're going to get to that, we're going to get back to that in a minute. Paul says, even an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you. He is to be accursed. The the, the implication there is he's to be condemned to hell. Verse 9, Paul says it again. As we've said before, so I say again now. If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. The Greek word there is anathema. The implication is condemned to hell. Now, our culture would say, Paul, Paul, Jude, you guys are haters. You guys are haters. You're not very loving, right? And the reason the culture says that is because they've redefined love. The culture defines love horizontally. If I say something to offend you, even if it's true, we're not even going to, truth is not part of the equation. If I say something that offends your ears, then I'm hateful and I'm not loving. Even if what I've said is true. The prime example of that is the topic of homosexuality, right? I mean, if I say, hey man, God's got such a, God has a design for you that is contrary to homosexuality. Homosexuality is contrary to God's design. He's designed sex to be between a male born as a male, a female born as a female who were married. And in that boundary, as God described in Genesis 2, one flesh, this physicality of bodies, sex, and unity of soul and spirit, one flesh, that's the way God described it in Genesis 2, that's the rich design that God did for sex in this fence right here. Outside the fence, homosexuality and other uh, sexual, uh, sexually immoral things, that's outside the fence. That's an offense to God. That's wrong. Don't do that. 
if I say that, and, and I said it, <laughs> then that's hate speech in many countries. A criminal penalty, criminal exposure to the speaker for saying those words because the world has defined love horizontally. I love the way Vody Bachman describes this. It's between us because, of course, the world has excluded God from the equation. There is no God in, in, in the analysis, and so I'm God, you're God, we're all God, and I don't want to offend you, and you don't want to offend me, but God says, no, 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 you, you don't get it. I'm God. And God is love. He doesn't just love us. His very essence is love. So he's the monopoly on love. He defines what love is. And where do we go for the definition of love? That great passage, 1 Corinthians 13. We've heard it many times before. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is boom, boom, boom. And one of the booms is love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth, with truth. And so Paul says, speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4, 14 and 15. So it's not loving to remain silent in the face of the unrighteousness of false t teaching because we are to speak the truth in love. Let's see how the Apostle Peter put it in 1 Peter. In this great passage where we get the concept of apologia, not, a, not, apolo not, a, not apologizing, but it's the Greek word apologia, which is to give a defense. Again, we're talking about the war of the ages, spiritual warfare. Jude's talking about contend earnestly for the faith. Peter talks about give a defense. A defense because you're being attacked by false teaching. Spiritually, we're being attacked. We're in a spiritual battleground. So Peter says, always being ready to make a defense. There's the apologia. To everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So the world says, well, there, there, there it is, gentleness. You need to be gentle. That means don't say something that offends me, even if it's true. I mean, does this mean that we should candy coat the truth? Does this mean that we should minimize the truth? Does this mean, this mean that we should, you know what? Let's just, let's just take those verses out of the Bible. Let's just take them out. Because your ears don't want to hear those verses. No, let's, let's look at the biblical definition of gentleness. I mean, that's what's got to define our thinking. That's what defines love. We're looking for the vertical from God definition of love. Well, let's look at the vertical definition of gentleness. What does gentleness look like? It looks like humility. Humility, it looks like Jesus' restrained power. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they come <clears throat> to arrest him with the soldiers and the clubs and the swords, and Peter takes out his sword <clears throat> and cuts off the guy's ear, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and Jesus said, no, 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 no. Don't you get it? I can call down 12 legions, again, a military term, a warfare term, I could call down 12 legions of angels to protect me and to decimate these guys who showed up with their clubs and their swords. But I restrain my power. 
because I'm here as the suffering servant. I'm here singularly focused to die on the cross to serve us and to obey God. And so Jesus, who was meek and gentle, what that means is restrained power and humble. What Peter's saying is, don't you dare speak of the word of God to someone in arrogance. Jerks for Jesus. Right? I mean, the, 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 the jerk for Jesus is the guy who says, look, I know all this about the word of God, and you're a blah, 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 blah. No. We have power within us because we have the word of God, and we, and we are indwelt by God, and, we are, and, and there has always been and always will be power in the word of God. And so we have that power. But we are to communicate the word in gentleness, restrained power, in humility, not in arrogance. After all, that passage in 1 Corinthians 3 says, love does not brag and is not arrogant. So we have to speak in gentleness. But gentleness doesn't mean minimizing the truth, doesn't mean being a coward and saying, let's just not talk about those verses. No, it's in the book. Talk about the book, right? But then Peter says reverence, reverence. That's reverence towards God because we're dealing with his subject matter. We're dealing with his word, which is of absolute, absolute holiness. So when you defend the faith, contend earnestly for the faith, we don't have to be contentious. We're to be gentle, which means in humility, in restrained power and with reverence towards God. Don't just come in there like a bull in a china shop. Defend the faith, but defend the faith. Ask the Lord for help. Ask the Lord for humility, but speak it. Speak the truth in love. So defending the faith or contending for the faith is an act of humility done in gentleness and in respect for God. Now, we need to be careful about false teachers, who we call a false false teacher. We need to be careful about that because you don't want to just throw that around. That word is really reserved for someone who attacks the essentials of Christianity. There are essentials, orthodoxy. And then there are other things that that are also very important, but they're not essentials. I want to give a few examples of, of both. Essentials are things like the deity of Christ. Christ was fully man and fully God. That is an essential to the Christian faith. Another essential is Christ's payment for sins on the cross. Without that, we're toast. This is nothing without that. Salvation is by grace through faith. That's another essential. Another essential is the resurrection. Christ was physically resurrected. Another essential is that he will return. Physically, he will return. And there there are others in addition to that. Those are essentials. The false teacher always attacks those because they're critical to Christianity. Let's talk about some non-essentials. They're important these not, in, in, the, in, the, in the basket of non-essentials. These things are important. I'm not saying they're unimportant. It's just they're not essential and critical to orthodoxy. One, one non-essential is 
when God sends the Holy Spirit to the believer, which we all receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of faith, is it God the Father who sends the Holy Spirit, or is it God the Father and God the Son who sends the Holy Spirit? I don't, that, that's important, but it's not essential. We're not going to get all wrapped over that point. The church split. The Eastern Church and the Western Church split over that point in the year 1054 A.D. And so they were all worked up in a tizzy over that issue. It's important, but, but, but it's not essential. What's essential is that we receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of faith. But whether the Father sends the Spirit or it's the Father and the Son who send the Spirit, that's not an essential. Here's another example of a non-essential, what I believe is a non-essential. The Scripture, I think, is clear that the rapture of the church happens before the seven-year tribulation. But some in Christianity say, no, the rapture happens in the middle of the tribulation. Or the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation. I, I, I think they're not accurate when they say that. And they're missing what is described as the blessed hope in the New Testament. Because the rapture, us, the, 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 the resurrection happening before the, the horrible events of the seven years, that is great hope. So I think they're wrong when they say it happens in the middle of tribulation or the end of the tribulation. But I'm not going to call somebody a false teacher who, is, who thinks it's in the middle of tribulation or the end of tribulation. No. I might explain it to them on the way up. Right? I mean, but, but, but I'm not going to call them a false teacher because they're not. They're not a false teacher. Uh, a, uh, another example of a non-essential is, did Jesus make wine? Or did he make grape juice? I, I believe Jesus made wine. I, I believe that the, 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 the scripture is clear on that. But some in Christianity say, no, 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 it was grape juice. Okay. That's, that, that's a non-essential. We're not going to call that person a false teacher. Or is it okay to work on Sunday? Is it okay to, to pull a couple weeds in your flower bed on Sunday? Or to crank up the weed eater? Yeah. Because the commandment of the Sabbath doesn't apply in the New Testament. Now, now, some in Christianity say, no way! You better not crank up that lawnmower on Sunday. I, 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 that's not accurate. But we're not going to call that person a false teacher. We need to be careful with that word and, and use it in a restrained way. In a restrained way, because we need to be humble when we deal with this subject matter. Very quickly, let me, let me talk about three false teachers over, who, 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 we've, who have existed over the centuries. And all three of these false teachers, you'll see what's common among them is that they attack the person or the work of Christ or both. Let me start with Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian in the late 1800s. She declared that Jesus is not God and that his work on the cross did not pay for our sins. Here's what she said. The Christian believes that Christ is God. Here Christian science intervenes, explains these doctrinal points, cancels the disagreement, and settles the question. Christ as the true spiritual ideal, ideal, is the ideal of God, now and forever, here and everywhere. Jesus Christ is not God, she says. 
as Jesus himself declared, but as the Son of God. And now she pr provides a false teaching with respect to the atonement, the, the payment of sin, in the second paragraph here. One sacrifice, however great, is insufficient to pay the debt of sin, she says. That God's wrath should be vented upon his beloved son is divinely unnatural. Such a theory is man-made, according to Mary Baker Eddy. This is false teaching of the highest order. It teaches a gospel that is contrary to the faith that was once handed down, once for all, handed down to the saints. Mary Baker Eddy was a false teacher who deceives many into thinking that Jesus is an ideal, not the eternal Son of God, not the God-man who paid for the sins of the, of the world, not the God-man who is the only access to the Father. So she has deceived many. The second false teacher that I'd like to talk about, and the reason I mention names is because the Apostle Paul mentioned names. He specified names. So I'm going to specify names. Joseph Smith, who founded Mormonism in the early 1800s. He was supposedly told by God and angels that he had a new interpretation about Jesus. According to Mormonism, Smith taught that Jesus is not the God-man, but instead is a created being who is the brother of Satan. Here's what Smith said. It was while he, this is, uh, this is a the first paragraph here is a description from Mormonism. It was while he, Joseph Smith, was living there in New York in the spring of 1820 when he was 14 years of age that he experienced his first vision. Other divine manifestations followed in which he was taught by many angels. The reason I, I mentioned angels earlier, remember the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1 was saying, even if an angel comes and preaches a gospel that is contrary to what we the apostles taught, he is to be an anathema, accursed. So... Joseph Smith says, well, angels came and told me stuff that's contrary to the scripture. And here's the stuff, the second paragraph. On first hearing the doctrine that Lucifer and our Lord Jesus Christ are brothers may seem surprising to some. Yeah, you're right about that. <laughs> Especially to those unacquainted with latter-day revelations. Just, 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 just think about that for me. Latter-day revelations. In other words, this revelation's not enough. We need another revelation 1,800 years after this was written, according to Mr. Smith. But both the scriptures and the prophets affirm, they say, that Jesus Christ and Lucifer are indeed offspring of our Heavenly Father and therefore spirit brothers. They just say that. They just say that. But that is a bald-faced lie. There is nothing, nothing, nothing in the scriptures, in the... It, in any of these scriptures that say that Jesus and Lucifer were brothers, but that's why it's so important for us to know what's in here. This is our defensive weapon in the war of the ages, because if not, if it shows up on a website or it shows up printed, then people believe it, believe it. But this is an absolute lie. And then, and then they end with, but as the firstborn of the Father, Jesus was Lucifer's older brother. Like Christian science, Mormonism is extreme false teaching. It teaches a gospel that is contrary to the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. Like Mary Baker Eddy, 
Joseph Smith was a false teacher who deceives many into thinking that Jesus was merely a spirit being, but not the eternal Son of God. The third false teacher that I'd like to talk about is Muhammad, who founded Islam in the 600s AD. He supposedly received additional revelation, new revelation, from the, from the angel Gabriel. And that additional revelation was that Jesus was merely a prophet among many, but not the eternal Son of God. Here's what Muhammad said in the Quran. Say, O believers, we have believed in Allah and what has been revealed to us and what has been revealed to Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac and Jacob and the descendants and what was given to Moses and Jesus and what was given to the prophets from their Lord, we make no distinction among any of them. In other words, Jesus is as a among all the other prophets. No different. Not the prophet with a capital P like Moses had prophesied. That's not what Muhammad is saying. Muhammad is saying he's a prophet among many. He's just the same as any other prophet. Lowercase p. And then the second paragraph here. Muhammad says, O people of the scripture, he means people of the book, he means you and me. Do not commit excess in your religion or say about Allah except the truth. The Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, was but a messenger of Allah. So believe in Allah and his messengers and do not say three. In other words, don't say that God is triune. Don't say God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three persons in one God. Desist, it is better for you. Indeed, Allah is but one God. Exalted is he above having a son, meaning Jesus is but a prophet among many, lowercase p, not the eternal son of God, not fully God, like God the Holy Spirit and God the Father. Like Christian science and Mormonism, Islam teaches a gospel contrary to the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. Like Mary Baker Eddy and Joseph Smith, Muhammad was a false teacher who teaches many into thinking that Jesus was merely a prophet and not the eternal Son of God. Judah's warning us. He was warning his readers and by, by extension us about false teachers like these three. And there are many, many more false teachers in addition to these. In closing here, let me focus on the last part of verse 4 where Jude said, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. What these false teachers that Jude was dealing with, what they were doing is they were taking, so saying, oh, you're saved by grace? Sweet, sweet, you're saved by grace? Well, then you can do whatever, what's the word? Licentiousness, license, whatever sexual immorality you want to do because it's grace. No. That's a total of grace. And notice at the end, he says, deny our master and Lord Jesus Christ. There are two things that go hand in hand, sexual immorality and rejection of God. Paul explains that. He unpacks that in Romans 1. Those two things always go together, sexual immorality and rejection of God. And so Jude, in our verses today, is preparing us for warfare. He's screaming that the regulars are coming. The regulars are coming. Prepare yourselves. Ready your, yourselves for the war of the ages because it's here. And the enemy, the devil, 
is using weapons, offensive weapons against you, like sexual immorality, rejection of Christ, worldly lusts, in addition to sexual immorality. And we're going to see these verses as, as this study unfolds. Flattering people to gain advantage, that's an offensive weapon that the devil uses and false teachers use, and mocking divine truth, mocking the Word of God, just like Satan did to, to Eve in Genesis 3. You surely will not die if you eat from that tree. That, he was mocking God's Word. Jude is going to tell us about our defensive weapons, divine truth, right here, right here. No new revelation until Christ returns. Divine truth is a defensive weapon. Prayer is a defensive weapon. The love of God is a defensive weapon. Hope in Christ's return is a defensive weapon. And a weapon that the world can't comprehend. A defensive weapon is mercy. Mercy. It's akin to gentleness. The world doesn't like mercy and gentleness. They want to prop themselves up, but that's a defensive weapon that Jude's going to be telling us about. So we are to contend for the faith and to speak the truth in love. And like the men and men of old, Jude calls us to arms because you are not in a playground. You are in a battleground. Live like it. Know it. Understand it. Be prepared. We'll rest when we get home and we lay down our weapons and we're with the king. But we're not there yet. Father, we thank you for our time together. We ask that you challenge us by your word. Remind us that you love us. Remind us that you called us. Remind us that we are kept for the blessing of the day of the Lord in Christ Jesus. And we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. And we pray these things in the name of the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lord of the armies. Jesus Christ. Amen.